Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, you know, uh, Veterans Day was last week, wasn't it, Tyler? It was last Wednesday, Peter. And, you know, we've done some Veterans Day shows on ASP, uh, a couple of cool shows, and uh, we didn't really get a, get a show together on Veterans Day, so I thought we'd pick a little bit of that up today. Yeah. And uh, so we've got a really cool guest. It's, this is kind of a laid back show. So we're going to talk about veterans and service to America, coastal service in particular, and and then environmental advocacy and coastal advocacy, which is a pretty cool combination for a show, I think. I think so, too. Uh, but uh, there are a few reasons why this show today is very special. Uh, my good friend, uh, homeboy from Ojai... Uh, Peter Deneen uh, is with us in person. Yeah, which is special in COVID times to have a uh, the opportunity to talk to anyone in person. Frankly, we yeah. I think we've done some Facetimes, but Peter uh, arrived in Austin today as he travels across the country, and I said, "When you come in, we are doing a show. Yeah, we're gonna get this on the American Shoreline podcast, Peter." Uh, went to the Coast Guard Academy, uh, served in the Coast Guard for many years as an officer, uh, and then uh, pursued his master's degree at Columbia in environmental science, uh, and now uh, is back in Ojai, back in his hometown, serving the community uh, with the Watershed Progressive, an organization that does water work <laughs> out in the <laughs> West. Uh, and I was just on a river trip out in the West and I'm interested, I'm very interested in water generally. Uh, and I'm excited to talk to Peter. I mean, this is a cool show, ladies and gentlemen, with, <laughs> with, uh, Peter Deneen. So, um, looking forward to getting, getting into it. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Uh, so it's my first time uh, meeting Peter Deneen, but uh, I've heard about 
Peter Denane for many years uh, as a longtime friend of Tyler's uh, and heard some of the stories. So I'm very interested to have you on the American Shoreline podcast today because, uh, you know, the track that you've taken is is really interesting. And uh, there's a, there's a ton I want to know about. And um, and the, the Coast Guard Academy, first of all. Right. Salute to all the vets. But uh, yeah, Peter, welcome to the show, man. First of all. Man, thank you guys so much. <laughs> it's good to have this, you here, Peter. It's so good to be here. Um, Tyler, I got to say, those the FaceTimes that we've had with with Andy and you, our regular kind of, you know, uh, have a toke at sunset and, and catch up for an hour has been a real lifeblood of COVID for me. So Yeah, no kidding. Man, <clears throat> uh, it's so good to be here in person. And, and you know, Peter, I was telling you before, <laughs> Yeah, I was listening to you guys more than a year and a half ago when you were first starting out on my bike rides to Columbia. I was living in, in Queens, and I would bike across to Queensboro, and I had Peter and Tyler in my ear a lot of the, a lot of the time, you know. And, and so that's it, when you were a student, right? Yeah, right, that's, right. You were you were actually getting your masters at that time. Well, Peter, uh, let's start with the beginning. Uh, what's your connection with the coast? You're a, you went to the Coast Guard Academy. It's Obviously, there's a maritime interest to to pursue that, but what is that for you? You know, the Coast Guard Academy was a funny fit for me because growing up, I was not, you know, we grew up in Ojai, Tyler, which was, and you had a beach house. I, I didn't feel that connected to the ocean living there. I was, I was kind of in the mountains, up in the creeks and the rivers and the lakes, but I went, I went to the Coast Guard Academy before really having an interest in the ocean or the, or the coastal environment. I was a soccer player. And my sister had gone to the Coast Guard Academy. Yeah. And wow. be- because of that connection, um, I was part of the first recruited class of, of athletes to the soccer program when the, the current coach had come Is in at the time. Right. That's so, interesting. So okay. I kind of yeah, so went there not really thinking to myself like, okay, I'm going to be a Coast Guard officer when I graduate. It was, here's a $300,000 scholarship and you can play soccer and baseball in college and then you're going to a good school. And so that was yeah. my mindset, you know? Yeah. But obviously, when I graduated, pragmatic, yeah. But yeah, through through the course of the four years at the academy, and then eight years of active duty service afterward, yeah, my connection to the ocean is is it's not the way that it would have been had it had it developed from a position of 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 soulful kind of coexistence and, and bonding. I I got to know the, the the maritime environment from a place of this is a theater of operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that was my approach to it's it. It's a place of danger and uh, some, yeah, yeah, not not, not just. Uh, well, ha- tell me about what is the co- what is uh, your what what does that mean to look at it as a theater of operation? Well, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you what my uh, what my specialty was in the Coast Guard. So after graduating, I was assigned to a cutter, which is. That's what we call our ships. It's like a frigate-sized vessel, a crew of about 175, about 15 officers, one of which I was one of, the junior officers on board. And I was a mission commander for, for surface pursuit teams. And so we would go down to South America, Central America, coastal region, so like Eastern Pacific. Mm-hmm. And we would conduct um, uh, narcotics interdiction operations off the shores of those countries and exert U.S. law in international waters in those spaces. Wow. And that became my specialty as both as an operator 
uh, on the surface as well as an operator from ashore in the Pacific Area Command Center, which happens to also be in the Bay Area. So I had a good five years in the Bay Area after graduating. Not bad. That was a good period of time, as I recall. Yeah, we had we had some fun overlaps yeah, P- there. Peter and I overlapped in the Bay Area uh, for about a year, and uh, I, I routinely crashed on his sofa during that period of time. Uh, and you were living on a boat. I was. I was. That's that is correct. I was living on the Vanadis over there in the Emeryville Marina, East Bay. But uh, I got kicked off the boat after a breakup and uh was homeless and peter took me in which was which was lovely uh peter Ravella, you'll recall when we were in san francisco we were there in north beach and it, it, that's where all those italian yeah. like yeah, was pastry great. shops and it's just so it was a cool neighborhood that you lived there yeah very cool anyway uh so what you're saying is that you're in your uh job as a as a public servant as an officer in the military effectively in the coast guard you know your connection with this space is that it's like well you got to operate shit in there and it's going to take time and you're going to need to calculate fuel and resupply and mm-hmm. it's going to take so many men yeah, this no, and there's crime and there's <laughs> um, weapons involved yeah. and you know got to ca- there's some calculation shooting you know there's some shooting and thing you know it's a yeah you're not thinking about the seaweed, I I don't think. No, and so, so, so it, it is funny that my relationship developed sort of backward in this way. Like, you know, I had a reverence and respect for the sea because I understood that operating out there was different. Something, you know, it's it's different than than being on land. Not only are you, are you operating under, you know, these archaic maritime laws, but you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're completely you need to be completely self sufficient. You know, like in addition to being a, a deck watch officer on on board and a landing signals officer for helicopters and a, a surface pursuit mission commander and all the other different hats you had to wear, it was like I was also the repair five locker leader, which meant I was responsible for the being the fire attack team for machinery space fires, which are like, mm. you know, the ones that sink ships. So it was like right. <laughs> it, there were so many nights and these ships were built in like the Vietnam area, you know, like the keel of the Sherman that I was on was laid in like 1968, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> the implication of which is, is old and archaic. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I have to say, well, what's interesting is, you know, I you know for me, that's my, you know, really, is that that old? Well, Vietnam era? in ship terms, I don't know ships, you know, in the salt water, I feel like yeah. everything just kind of degrades, but <clears throat> that's true. That's they a 50 year old buck. The way that those old, sh- I would love to learn more about modern shipbuilding, but I know that those old ships that were laid down, you know, in the Northeast and on the qual, I mean, I've, I've, I've been nerding out. Uh, this is a total aside, ladies and gentlemen, but I've been nerding out on the USS new jersey youtube page i have watched this dude this freaking curator this curator has my attention like it is insane i it's not but you should check it out i do ss i do have to yeah okay so this guy uh is all over the place in the ship he's what you know COVID has shut the museum down so he's taking you with a camera all around this battleship and you're looking at the construction if you're a nerd like me i'm looking at the construction this handcrafted metal you know the the lines the the of the ship the way it's designed 12 inches thick armor 
of steel. Like this, these are these are craft in of in and of themselves. They're beautiful, and there is. I think there is something to be said for an old an old ship. There's something yeah. like it, I, I do think they're built well. That being said, you know. They might not Rust. have the best. Yeah, <laughs> maintenance <laughs> might be an issue. I mean, they're, the the Coast Guard is kind of we're the the under resource of the branches of the military. You know what I mean? Right. So we kind of our our stuff. We have to make do. Is you kind know, of like. Let me ask you. Don't seem to be short of one thing of the services. The one thing that the Coast Guard is never short of is white paint. Yeah. I mean, does yeah. everything looks good? I mean, don't you think you see these ships? Well, yeah, you cover the rust up with they, it, you know? <laughs> that's what I was going <laughs> to yeah. ask you. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the ships do always look impeccable. Yeah, they do. They do do a good job. You know, it's, it's a nice facade. But, you know, you, you take these things up. Like the, the other, the other theater of operation for me was uh, up in the Arctic. We'd go up to the Bering Sea. And up to the Chuchki and enforce uh, fisheries laws and and the maritime uh, boundary line between us, uh, the United States and Russia. And you know we would be cu- like these super typhoons that spin up from the Pacific um, and have like you know the ones that had like the long lifespan where they kind of traverse the entire you know wow. area by Japan and they end up kind of entering the, the bearing as these like. Uh, like the strength of a subtropical typhoon mixed with like that, that cold Arctic air. And we would be in seas, you know, like 45, 50 feet. And then we'd stuff the bow into it. And like wow. the whole, and I, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm the officer on deck. It's, you know, three o'clock in the morning and like we're shipping water over the bow and, it, and you feel the whole ship just like vibrate and creak. And you start to wonder, you're like, all right, I have to call the captain. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, yeah. like, what is the, the, you know, there's the emotion of just the amazing power of doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. Just as a guy, like, we just rammed it through this huge wave. You got that going on, right? And then it's incredibly scary as shit. Like, is the boat going to hold together? So, like, you know, it, you're, you're 21, you're 22, you're the officer on deck at 3 in the morning, pounding through 45 <laughs> ways. And I'm just curious, you know, of the emotion that you're having in that moment, is it dominated by this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my freaking life? Or I can't believe I'm in command of 150 people in a, you know, a huge boat at three in the morning. I mean, that kind of might die. Yeah, and I might die. Yeah. I mean, it has to be the way, like, if you have that, if that fear takes a hold of you and you're the officer on deck, um, then you've kind of lost it, you know, like then you should, that's, that's the moment where you realize you shouldn't be in that position. So I feel like for me, I was always in that moment feeling like, fuck yes. Like I know, like I feel good. I'm confident. Like I know what to do. Um, would you be drinking coffee at that hour? I mean, would, would you subject yourself to that? Yeah. I mean, I was in the most unhealthy of biorhythms. There was a time didn't, especially when you're in like, extreme latitudes we kind of like we play with time zones a lot to like adjust our work day with the light and uh so you're just your biorhythm's so thrown off yeah you're drinking coffee anytime you're on watch you're just like trying to stay pretty jacked up Mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah i mean whether whether it was like the you know the arctic and and the heavy seas or whether we're down south doing the the kind of narcotic stuff where it's like um what takes a hold of you is just adrenaline and muscle memory from training we you know 
we're, we're jumping on boats, you know, sometimes like at speed, right. Um, to do these, what we call right of visit boardings. Basically we go down into the open, into the international ocean and a vessel that doesn't show an apparent indicia of nationality. Mm-hmm. We do these right of visit boardings and we have a kind of fluid process in place, you know, vessel in a transit zone, northern, northerly course, okay. you know, all the, all the suspect, the reasonable suspicion things that, that meet the, mm-hmm. our thresholds Which to say. Which have to be pronounced and said out loud. Like some right? judge exactly. has probably reviewed that. Exactly. But remember, the admiralty law is, you know, it's archaic as fuck. It's old. Yeah. So no judge you're has in, ever you're, reviewed yeah. it. You're in command. Yeah. Many vessels don't fly literal flags, you know, like sometimes they're, like a lot of these little, these little lanchas, these pangas that... From some of these countries, they have it painted on the side or something. Mm. But like, really, we're gonna ask them to like hoist hoist an ensign for us to be able to tell like what they are. Like, we know. Anyways, it's <laughs> it's a reason it's a reason to get on board these boats. So I, I'm interested in the getting from one boat to the other process. Is this the Zodiac thing that's on the commercial? You know, when you see the cool Coast Guard commercial and they're like cutting through with these big, powerful Zodiacs yeah. gear, geared up. Is, yeah. that, is that the scene? It, yeah, it's a rigid hull inflatable. We call them OTHs, yeah, okay. which stands for over the horizon. So these boats can go over the horizon from mothership and and, and still be able to navigate independently, communicate independently wow. without be, needing to be in line of sight. That's a hell of a, a, hell of a little guy. Yeah, sent out there. I've spent many night out in these little things, and you, oh, and really? you got the, the you're kind of like riding. It's like riding a pony, but it's like a shock loaded pony when there's like a roll cage too, wow. and so you're kind of just. And what's <laughs> the what's the power? What 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 do we got for the power? These outboards? Uh no no they're inboard and God you now they're you're te- super, now you're testing they're just me. super. Yeah. <laughs> the coolest, you know, yeah. like let's yeah. say they don't suffer from a power problem. No, yeah, they go, we go, you know, up to like 55, 60 knots pretty routinely. Wow. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. yeah. Very fast. Yeah. So when you're you're going over, it's called right to board? We call it a right of visit boarding. A right of visit board. Is this, yeah. an, in, and this is an international water. If you are a, a law enforcement entity, this can't be only, you know, the Coast Guard, right? This would be whatever the British have that's comparable or the exactly. French, right? Right. So if, if you're sort of tooling around your area and there's something going on and you're the, do you have to be the principal in charge? Do you have to be the adjacent power? It, so no, you don't need to be. Um, huh. And we have these bilateral agreements with each of these countries, you know, to varying degrees, depending on okay. how, on how cooperative a relationship we have with them. All right. Um, but yeah, essentially any country that has it's exerting has a government warship at sea can can do these right of visit boardings if they come across a vessel that is apparently okay. stateless, right? Because you can go investigate and see um, who are you? Who are you exactly? And that's the right of visit. But we're kind of the only ones operating with that far of like a offshore capacity with any sort of endurance. You know, we'll be out there for four or five weeks sometimes before we drop into a port to wow. to refuel and and you said resupply. warship now does is that how you guys think of the coast guard cutters is that they are warships is that how they're described in the that's in, how they're in the trade so we that's how they're described in um like the united nations law of the sea convention right? they are like okay. yeah they're considered warships yeah wow. and uh but we call them we call them cutters right you know? but yeah which the, is a cool name i've always liked it yeah yeah, Coast kind of, Guard it, it implies a certain tack. Yeah, you know, you're really. I always view it like yeah. I'm cutting through the waves. Sure, of course, it's power. It's yeah. Well, that's what they were. You know, those cutters. 
those early cutters they were like they were the they were the fast ones you know with the big <clears throat> the big sales oh really oh yeah. yeah yeah interesting yeah i had no idea well look i want to transition so, yeah really bef- really quickly peter i i i know we want to move on and and uh learn about peter's uh departure from uh, his service with the Coast Guard and on to uh, Columbia. But before we do that, I want to give you a minute to talk about Thomas. And uh, go ahead. Wow, it means it means a lot that you that you, that you decided to bring him up. Um, I love talking about him, and so this is kind of my first opportunity to really do that in any sort of recorded way. Um, <clears throat> so Thomas, uh, Thomas Cameron, that's who Tyler's talking about, he was a lieutenant junior grade, uh, when he died, we were 24 years old. Uh, he was in a helicopter crash, uh, which occurred February 28th, 2012. Uh, the helicopter was on a training mission, uh, nighttime over water is one of the last, uh, the last checks in the, in the syllabus for Thomas before he was going to be a fully fledged MH 65 dolphin pilot down in Burink in Puerto Rico. Mm. And uh, let's see, they, Thomas had finished the evolution and they had, he had regained uh, forward flight and altitude. And uh, they punched into the clouds, a heavy, a heavy cloud fog layer had set upon them while they were doing their training event. And so when they punched into the fog, uh, what happens in aviation is it, all the rules change, right? Once you lose visibility, you go from uh, from the, the visible mm-hmm. meteorological conditions to uh, what, what's called instrumental, right? Yeah. I, IMC. And there weren't really, the procedures for entering IMC, which is when you that flight regime changes at the time, it wasn't exactly clear what pilots were required to do. You kind of wanted to just try to regain visual horizon. It was, it was kind of the practice. Hmm. And so when they punched into the fog, uh, the instructor pilot, Lieutenant Commander Dale Taylor, who was regarded as one of the was one of the top pilots in the Coast Guard and one of the best instructor pilots, he took the controls from Thomas and had Thomas uh, change the displays uh, mm-hmm. on their on their panel. So Thomas is looking down, and um, what's what's presumed is that Dale was looking out the window trying to find a visible horizon, and he says on on the uh, on the recording that he's gonna he's gonna bring it down slowly. Hmm. Um, and so what happens when you have vertigo is you can't really tell, right. Whether you're, whether you're coming down at like a casual attitude or like a nose down at attitude. And so what the flight recorder showed was that I think it was like 38 degrees nose down Ooh, kind of, so kind of like a hard, like a hard right, right bank turn. Yeah. They were, wow. they were inverted when they entered the water. So, um, <clears throat> all four of the crew members died. The other two were Andrew Knight and Fernando George. Um, so I'd like to recognize that whole crew, but yeah. So Thomas, Thomas, uh, and our classmates at the Coast Guard Academy, we were captains, uh, of the soccer team. We were both strikers. Wow. Um, and just, yeah, just the best, best of friends. He had so many, so many beautiful relationships with so many people. Uh, but, um, I think for some reason our, because our relationship was very visible as like captains of a team together and kind of like, you know, yeah guys who drank beer, a lot of beer together, <laughs> stuff like right. that, you know, like guys who, uh, so yeah. And became our, officers together. I mean, yeah. which is a, it was a huge yeah. deal. Yeah. So yeah, 
it's it's been so beautiful because he's god they're like i think 15 of our friends now have thomas's name incorporated into their children's names mm-hmm. there's some like 30 odd people with like you know his name's tattooed on their bodies now and so many more wow. so many more people just living their lives in a different way really a more inspired way a more a, a way that is in alignment with thomas's character and it's just like it's the most beautiful thing it's kept me really connected to the coast guard academy still through the soccer team totally. the guys who go there um so man thank you so much for asking about him I would feel remiss if we didn't uh, give, you know, I'll just say as your friend, um, I've watched you process that, you know, and uh, I think you should be really proud of the way you honor his legacy. And um, so uh, I, I would feel remiss if we didn't, you know, give it some time on this, on, on this show. Uh, we certainly will. Um, and God bless Thomas. Uh, I guess I don't, I don't mean to transition away, but I want to pick up your, your story and, um, you know, you were in the coast guard for some time, you know, when you go to the coast guard Academy, it's almost, there's a fair chance you're going to be a career person. Like, you can do it. Officer's life is pretty good, Coast mm-hmm. Guard. Well, yeah. Uh, it's and of common, course, I think, from the academies, whether the, you know, West Point or Air Force Academy, any of it. But, uh, yeah. You're serious. Man. When, uh, I think it's fair to say, I don't think you'll, um, uh, have a problem, uh, acknowledging this, but when Donald Trump was elected as a service member, you, felt like you needed to step down and uh, move along. And I would you just talk through? I mean, this is obviously a major life pivot. You're making a pivot. It's a principled pivot, I would say, regardless of one's politics. You'd acknowledge that that's a. a well, we'll find out. Because <laughs> <laughs> we need to ask him. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Peter Neen, take it away. Well. Yeah, I would say that I was about 85% ready to leave the Coast Guard when I did, when Donald Trump got elected president. At the time, I was stationed in New York City, um, and I was the operations planning officer. So I was kind of responsible for allocating assets um, in the New York, the Port of New York region, um, which is the Coast Guard's largest operational command. And... One of my responsibilities in doing that was presidential security because each time the president would fly in and out of New York, they would land at LaGuardia and there are lines of fire on the water there at LaGuardia. So we we have uh, forces set up to protect that space and as well as a space around Wall Street Hilo Pier because the president takes Marine One from from LaGuardia to Wall Street. That's right. A little hopscotch. That's interesting, yeah. So we it's a major event when it occurs. It's this full, you know, we enact this whole agreement with the, the U S secret service and we collaborate with, uh, the FBI and FDNY and NYPD. It's a, it's a, it's a big production when it happens, you know, there had never been two candidates in the same city, the same night, like the two like president elections. Yeah. They were both headquartered in New York city. Not only that, they were in, in the same like five block radius. It was crazy. So like, 
the the likelihood high risk high high risk and so we had the we you know we set up we had evacuation routes set up on the east river evacuation routes set up on the hudson river we had you know this whole everything kind of in place um and i remember sitting there and i'm watching the screens and we have cameras in like the the clinton campaign there's cameras in the trump campaign i'm watching all these little guys with their ipads walking around you know watching states turn different colors and like i'm watching the new york times ticker percentages flip and my stomach dropped and the secret service guys are like you know cursing colorado for going blue and i was just like oh my god what is happening right now i got home at like four o'clock in the morning and um wrote chanley a note you know telling her what happened because when she had gone to bed it was everything was looking like Mm-hmm. Clinton but um, so yeah we went to the women's march in DC and the inauguration protest and when I got back that next Monday uh, I submitted my resignation which I was like I mentioned I was kind of already there I had actually I had actually tried to leave the Coast Guard <laughs> remember that in 2014 I submitted my my resignation right um, and, but the admiral that I was working for Carl Schultz who's actually now the commandant of the Coast Guard um, he and I had a great relationship um, I was one of his law enforcement duty officers, so I briefed him very frequently. Yeah. We played in the same sports teams together on the island. You know, we were playing softball together, basketball together, soccer yeah. together. You know, he played soccer at the academy too, actually. Really? Wow. Yeah. So he really, he had, he stuck himself out for me and got me that this that job in D.C. where I was doing the, the interagency piracy terrorism coordination stuff. Mm-hmm. He got me that job where it was like suit and tie. I felt like I was out of the Coast Guard for a couple of years, and that's yeah. why I ended up staying in because I was like, oh, you know what, maybe, yeah. maybe he'll give us another shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a cool experience to say the least. Uh, And, you know, I think you did an excellent job (laughs) in your, in your post as an officer in the Coast Guard. Yeah. Um, What's, what, what's interesting is that when you did leave, uh, you, you were faced with a decision. We actually had a conversation around this time and you said, you know, do I get a master's degree or do I not? And I think I advise you like not to, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I hate to, you know, I don't want to break the suspense, but that's not what happened. No, <laughs> he did not take your advice. So you owe me some, you owe me an explanation. <laughs> well, no, man, I think, I, I think I was talking about getting a JD and you maybe advised me against getting a JD. I probably did that as well. I would have done <laughs> I would, I would, I would say that I would advise against that (laughs) in this particular situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, so after I got out, I ended up, you know, I went down to New Jersey and worked on that campaign. I teamed up with a Navy veteran named Josh Welly who was running in the New Jersey, New Jersey fourth, which was like, you know, heavy, heavy Republican district. So Mm -hmm. I helped, I helped him for his 2018 midterm campaign, went home for Thanksgiving. That's when the Thomas fire happened. (laughs) <laughs> right the thomas fire burned our hometown and i happened to be there for it and it that kind of was that event really defined a lot really of what came from after that for me well at least with ojai it's like so many so many connections were instantly formed there mm. that have really um they've all just been really beautiful ones that i've that i've held on to and have become like solid friendships but you've always been an environmentalist man like your senior project was like charting a trail after a big flood, yeah. I mean that's we, some, in reality. That's in, in reality, we just got stoned for three days and wandered around. <laughs> but we made a made a video out of it. Well, you know, people say that's what environmentalists really do anyway. But uh, an unfair criticism, hey, I think. I, there's, yeah. so. <laughs> and I would say that the environmentalists should rebrand from green, also, or like you know, you got to be more. 
I don't know. There's some brand, uh, some blur there. Anyway. Yeah. So, but <laughs> so you decide to go to Columbia, which is great. And I want to know, did you like, they have a really great environmental sciences school, uh, really highly grounded, especially on climate change. Absolutely top notch. Yeah. The Earth Institute is incredible. Right. It's incredible. And they're, and they're teamed up with the Lamont and Doherty Earth Observatory, which is just upstate, full of just like world-class scientists, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole, the research wing. And so the program I went through, uh, which is a master's in climate and society. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, I want to know. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. very interested. I want to know. Yeah. So it, we, okay. we are the master of arts program attached to the Earth Institute's research wing. Wow. So basically we're, it's, it's kind of funny that it's a master of arts, but it is. It's very interesting. Oh, I think a very I totally dig that it's a master of arts. I do too, and uh, <laughs> you know, I gotta say, that I the, respect that. Well, it, it is cool. It is cool. Climate change, as we've said, is a people problem. Exactly. Amen. It's fundamentally a people. Problem. But, exactly, Peter. But uh, but I've you know the 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 Earth Institute and and research that they've put out is I run that in Coastal News today a lot. You know, when I see something come out from that school. Um, it's really high quality analysis. They do great work on climate. Well, uh, the and we had on and forgive Peter, you'll help yeah. me recall the the fellow's name, but uh, we've had on one or two people. But the the person that did the um, retreat, if not now, when uh, uh, conference, which was at the time, oh yeah, kind of a revolutionary That's conference. Right. Yeah, yeah. In, the Columbia was, University was that uh, Radley Horton. Yes, that's correct. I think it was Radley because you had him. Didn't you have him on the show? We did. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Radley Horton. Yeah. Shout out, shout out, Radley. <laughs> Good man. Great man. A great and a, gr- a great show. But the point is, yeah, that's a uh, first rate. A, a, a really a, a aggressive and I mean, at the time that was like, as I recall, it was like this is really a uh, avant garde conference yeah. in the right. But know. I want to know. So when you. So you go, you go into this degree of, it, it's climate science and society. Yeah. So the society part being about how how this climate science that we're studying impacts yeah human society, right? How it impacts communities. What what surprised you about what you learned in that program, or or tell me about what you learned because that sounds like a great topic. First of all. Yeah, well, I mean, that program has set me on the path that I, that I'm on now. So, um, the graduate research that I did as a form of financial aid, actually, because I got paid to do it. I was a staff writer for a website that one of my professors, Ben Orlov, runs called GlacierHub.org, hmm. and uh, he he runs a site staffed by students of the Climate and Society program. And so I was, I was practicing science journalism essentially for the duration of grad school Excellent. Um, and became the senior editor of the site after I graduated. So I spent a good year and a half writing about glaciers, studying glaciers and the communities connected to them, which Ooh. man, it's a, such a fascinating way of looking at the world and looking at human societies. Okay. When tell us at, why. Yeah, tell us why. Give, us, give, why, me, why. Your, give why, me your why. like, yeah. Like, tell me what, tell me about <clears throat> yeah. that it movie at Glacier. What, what is so fascinating about that? And the communities that they have. I mean, yeah, yeah, I didn't know yeah. that they, yeah, okay. Yeah, give it. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, here's, here's where it interfaces with, with y'all's sphere, right? Um, because as, as, as the coastal community relates to land, right, it's, we're talking about, um, 
we're talking about a source of water, right? Coming from the mountains in many regions of the world, that steady water source is glaciers Mm -hmm. and glaciers as a, um, as a mechanism, as a, as it is a way of looking at and measuring climate change as one of the really tangible things that you can measure. Yeah. You know, if you're recording it, you can observe it quite readily. Yep. And so glaciers are like the, the thing, if you want to call it like a telltale sign of climate change and how fast it's happening, uh, you look at glaciers. And so, yep. I do, and because because you have the before and after, you'll have the 1894 photograph clearly from the same vantage point, so you can see the same peak, and the that's the cool thing. And then they come back in 2010, and they shoot it, and you can see the position of the ice. It's the best measure of climate change you can do. It is. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing as good as that. And there's so many fun ways of measuring glaciers and the different, you know, like studying that mass balance. Yeah. And... And and they're not like it's not like a like glaciers aren't like a monolith as a as a as a as a geologic feature or as a okay. or as an earth feature. It's they are all so different. There's so many different types of glaciers, and they're all melting at different rates for different reasons. Um, and so, not only are like the the ways of measuring it physically, like uh, on the surface of the earth, but the way they're measuring them now via satellite. Right is rad man they're like yeah. <laughs> dude yeah like some of the stuff that they're finding um in the arctic like for example there's this glacier called hiawatha up in northern greenland and um they've got these you know like ice penetrating radars you can yeah. like you know you can really see down below like you're like x-ray the, the ice. terrain yeah and so they found this massive impact crater that dated to like uh, 11,800 years ago or something like that. And it, which coincided with, um, a global, a global cooling that lasted several hundred years. It's it's called the little driest period. It's been one of the big climate question marks in recent history, which is why was there this global cooling? And they, we were looking for some sign of like it, it, an impact event that and could they, be and it. And they right? found it. And they fucking found it. Under the ice. They fucking found it under the ice. Yeah. It's and crazy. so yeah, it's like, amazing. like that was one of the, one of the feature stories I did as a, as a staff writer on Glacier Hub was pretty cool. And I, in the process, I got to interview Wally Broker who he had this theory. He had this theory of, um, like, like an interruption of the Atlantic overturning cycle by because of an influx of fresh water right so yep. this this would be the yep. impact event yeah, that could this is the produce the fresh water right and 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 fuck with the like salinity density thing enough to cause a global cooling and mm-hmm. um so i got to interview him in the process dude i was one of the last people if not the last person to to interview him he died like a month later wow um and for if, if anyone doesn't know who wally broker was he is uh, he's who they call the godfather of climate science. He's like the guy who developed the theory of global warming. Hmm. Um, so that was like, a, that was a, a trip and just an example of like, man, looking at the world through the lens of glaciers, looking at like New York city, like where we're based at Columbia, it was cool through the lens of glaciers. Yeah. Like, it's <clears> a terminal moraine <throat> about that. Right. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. The, the, yeah. Manhattan exactly. Island is the, it was the fallout of, of a yeah. glacier, right? Back that, in the day? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Verrazano Narrows is, that was where the, the glacial outburst flood must have occurred. That's where that punched, yeah. it punched through. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, Manhattan was under several thousand feet of ice. And then you look at the boulders in Central Park and they've got scrape marks on them still, yeah. and like glacial polish and stuff. Yeah. It's cool, man. Yeah. It's cool, look at, it's it cool looking at the world through the lens of glaciers. It is. Yeah. I do appreciate the yeah. geology thing. But well, we're talking about that from your trip out to Big Bad. Well, totally. The, I mean, a glacier is just a real slow river. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you something else. Exactly. An, o- an ocean's just a real big river. <laughs> exactly, dude. It really is. Well, everything's connected when you think about it, right? Yeah, it is. They're all flowing. They're all moving. Nothing's nothing stagnant. It's yeah. all ah, which uh, is what kills me about fucking climate change. It's like we're fucking with it, you know? Yeah. It's such a beautiful process. I hate to see it interrupt <laughs> this way. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't heard that spin it, on it. It moves around, you know, it, it's always in 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 flux, but uh, it is the first time that uh, it's been a critter that's made it change. The climate has changed and fluctuated. It's been volcanic stuff, like you're saying, a meteor strike. Stuff gets in the air. There's various things that affect the ice age and the drying periods and all this stuff's been happening forever. Yeah. This is the first time it's been a critter. We're a critter. A, a living being has instigated <laughs> right. the change. Up till now, none of the critters had anything to do with how the weather changed. Right. Now we're running the damn show, and that's never good. I mean, <laughs> right. we really are the most, we're exploiters. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's our instinct. I don't know. I mean, I don't. We're I, not going to handle it well. Well, I, we certainly are not handling it well at the present. But I do think that there are examples of of sustainable uh, lifestyles. Right. But I, but I, I just want to point out that that's like, true. I hate to be glad. I, I would like to ask our guest, Peter Janine, please. Are you an optimist? What is your take on climate change? You studied it at Columbia University and got your master's degree. Yeah. Like, what's your take? Yeah. Are you opt? Are we going down? Do we do we know? Is it going to hell or what's up? Peter, I'm, I am an optimist. Um, and I, and like sincerely, so, you know, I've got, I've got such confidence and not just optimism, but, but hope, which I think you gotta, you gotta have two of those, the two of those together. Right. And just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on optimism is informed hope. Yeah. You know, I I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I focus on on living my life and conducting my life in a way that I would like if everyone just lived their life in like a slightly less impactful way, like whatever it is that you do in your life, you know, whether it's your job or whether you're like recreation, if you could do it, that thing with an eye toward like doing it slightly more like sustainable, like regenerative, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, If you took 25% edge off of it, you know, whatever the negative carbon whatever whatever the impact assessment is if you could knock it back 25 percent, and everybody did that that'd make a big difference yeah you know yeah and uh and i guess what's really struck me about coronavirus and why i have so much hope for it is that because it's like coronavirus has, has been a massive upheaval in everyone's lives right globally yes and it's almost like we are like this is a moment where we're proving to ourselves that we can survive and we can we can bear a massive interruption like we haven't felt before, hmm. and that's like, happening. Like and and so perhaps perhaps we use what we've learned through this process, assuming that we get through this process, um, because right now things are looking pretty bleak out there in the United States. 
Um, right. Like if we get through this process and we've proven to ourselves that we can, that we can do hard things, you know, right. we can do hard things. We can do something We've done like, amazingly hard things in our past. This, we love doing hard things. It may set the stage. Humans, it's humans, so human humans, to do that. Humans thrive on hardship. We freaking love to adapt. We well, need it. Um, I, think we're, we're, I think we're great at facing uh, serious risks squarely. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that's been one of the hallmarks when, when people talked about FDR and uh, Winston Churchill, right? or Lincoln during the Civil War. There was never any, like, this is just all going to go away attitude. They spoke, and like in the second inaugural, inaugural, when Lincoln talks about if I have, if the every last bit of blood drawn by the lash is, has to be drawn from the sword to make this right, we're going to do it. That's what the president said. How brutal this war is. I know everybody wants it to be over, but if we have to reap... And that's leadership. Um, FDR was the same in World War II. So was Winston Churchill. They, these are dark times, is what they said. You know, this the Nazis are serious. We've got to get. Se- and and this is what Trump never did, and what he misunderstood about the American people. We react really well when someone is straight yes yes and just says listen this is a serious deal it's coming to kill your kids it's going to kill a bunch of us it's easy to move around i'm sorry it came from china i don't give a shit that it came from china it's here and we got to get serious that's what an american president would have said and been admired trump Never try. He said, "Loser." He said, "Well, what he said was, I didn't want to panic the American people, and that you know the American people. Now that's bullshit. We would have risen to the occasion, and the country would be much stronger had he just not tried to bullshit everybody." God, I totally agree, dude. I think that's probably the most the core piece of election analysis that I need. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. Like, like, you bet against the American people? He did. The American people bet against you. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question I'm for you, though. That. I'm into that. Here's a question for you, though, and hopefully this isn't too far off topic. But yeah. but say 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 Trump takes that approach to it right he, he's like he takes this moment and this is this is always this has always been my biggest lamentation about coronavirus is that it's like literally any other person could have taken that moment to really galvanize a people mm-hmm. you know a re- like we there was such a moment there back in like march yeah. april where things were feeling really like i was feeling warm and fuzzy about everyone like really kind of bonding and i was like oh my god is there like a fabrication of empathy happening here because that's the stuff we need for mm-hmm. climate to solve the climate problem right. Yeah, we need empathy, realization, right? and connection, and un- yeah, empathy. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, you gotta get into your soul. Yeah, and I feel like you know, and, and I, I, we were hearing it from Governor Cuomo for a minute there. You know, some of his night his nighttime chats were real, like about like loving one another and stuff. And I was like, ooh, I was like, yes, yeah, fireside we're, chat yeah, material. Right, we're onto something here. Yeah. Um, but like you know, evil not evil voices, but like voices of division prevailed. You know, and and we and we and we definitely split. Yeah, and I think I yeah. literally I think any other person, other than Donald Trump, could have really done something there. You you have I mean here's 
he had this is like a guy on a kickoff return right by the 50 he's clear of the coverage team and ahead of him is 50 yards of open it's it's you know this is the guy who's like watching the jumbotron as he should be running in that's how good the situation trump had in front of him politically because what you could say is to is to be humble about this this is a threat this is real yes i'm telling you that this is going to kill a lot of us right. it is not our fault it is not my fault right and we have at our back the cdc the best scientists in the world right. we're going to take this on right. we're going to set this God, why didn't he do that yes <laughs> and then he could say and i know and if and we're going to stumble and you're a bunch of us uh. are going to die and the rate's going to go up but we're going to keep working it's just a open field to heroic. It's so frustrating. Drawing on the drawing on the power of the federal government and the expertise and the trust in the American people. I mean, he just freaking fumbled it. What he a, didn't what even a pick fucking, the ball. What up. a fucking missed opportunity. Yeah, it was a missed opportunity. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's my take. I think it's he, a strong. I think take. it was right there. It was right there for strong. him. Strong, but but do you th- do you think if Trump had taken that approach, would Democrats have then tried to downplay the virus in order to, you know, that's I wonder about that. Yeah, no, there's probably some you know? part of it. Yeah, yeah, I, but but I wouldn't. But you know, the hard thing. I don't is, think so. It, like, I don't think so. I'll these tell you days, why. Hold okay, on. let me answer that question straight <laughs> up. <laughs> the virus, like, if you look at cities, like. Like the virus really started off as a Democrat problem, Democratic problem, because it was in cities. It didn't matter if you were in Texas or Alabama or wherever you were. If you were in a city, the virus had to be taken more seriously than if you were out in the country. And if you look at any election map of this country, the division, ladies and gentlemen, is rural people versus urban people, with the suburban people being the battleground of this culture war. And... uh yeah, I think at the moment. Yeah. I hope that changes. But well, I mean, I actually, I you know, Peter is me one, too. One Put, of putting things. that out there right now. Yeah. Well, positive vibrations. Earl, urban, rural. Realize that you guys need each other. You right. love each other. You are interconnected, in, inextricably dependent upon one We're another. We're all Americans. We're we all, all Americans. love the country. We all believe in liberty, freedom, yeah. and truth and justice in the American way. Let's put those vibes out there. And. Um, well, and also let's but, let's just talk for a minute about some of the a lot of common ground. Let's talk about some of the stuff with with this uh, smart guy Peter Deneen here, who's yeah. got his masters. But like one of the things that Peter, I'm, you know, we hear a lot about is resilience, resilient communities, resilient shorelines, resilient this or that, mm-hmm. and the ability to bounce back, the, as they say. Yeah. Well. I want to talk a little bit about what that actually means socially Hmm. to to confront a different kind of relationship with sustainability because like ultimately it seems to me our relationship with a plant like our our social uh, the technology we're trying to develop on this podcast for example and elsewhere is how to understand the human the human's relationship with the planet knowing now that the planet is finite we figured that out it's theory but we know it's true we can orbit it we can measure it peter as we've said 
time and time again. Our we're data rich. We have we can measure this son of a bitch <laughs> every way yeah. you want. Um, and there's more to learn. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? But the people problem. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, Doctor Denine, I'm deferring to you on this. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it a data issue or is it a people issue? Do people? Do we just need to pound the facts or what's going on? Uh, well, definitely not a doctor. Just uh, <laughs> just just old. Pete. I, I use that. As, I know. I use that <laughs> yeah, as yeah, joke. Yeah. But, but you get a master's um, from the Columbia School of Earth, the Institute. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, it's close. No, I. I it, was, right. it was kind of a general. Doctor I'll say trip. master Denise. Yeah, I, I do appreciate it. An honorary doctor. <laughs> yeah. Honorary doctor. We are conferring it from yeah. ASPN <laughs> University. This is our. For, in fact, Tyler. This brings to mind something we have not thought about on ASPN University, which is what are our rules going to be for the conferring of honorary degrees from ASPN University? It hadn't been thought of. It has not. And, and I think and to we be should... clear, ASPN University is not a university. <laughs> that doesn't mean it is a podcast channel. It is a podcast channel, but I think we should confer degrees. Yeah, we can and, confer and podcast I, I, and degrees. And I want to propose, I want to make a motion. Okay. This is a company Let's, motion. Yeah, okay. We'll have to take that it up. The first and, honorary degree ever awarded from ASPN University by acclamation of the board of directors, which is you and I, right, I is suppose. Peter Deneen. Guys, I'm... For his... Sur- I mean, do you concur? Guys, I'm fl- I'm flattered as as can be. I mean, this, this night this night is special enough as it is already. Like God, I'm drowning over here, drowning in your Would love. You, this is no concur because now I'm going to say Doctor Denine. No, no, because now I want to hear the answer. Yeah, on this radio program, you will henceforth be known as Doctor Doctor Denine. Oh God. So look, I mean, here's the thing about human resilience. Mm-hmm. Like. I mean, humans are such adaptable creatures. Like, we'll probably make it as a species, right? Like, f- for at least at least for a good yes. ge- geologic period of Earth's history, probably right. at least several million more years. Who knows? Like, maybe more than that. We're looking good. We're the roaches of the planet. Right. We are. Right. We're, right. We're, they, everybody thinks roaches can survive anything. We kick their ass. Yeah. We are the roaches of the planet. We can adapt to <laughs> yeah. any circumstance it's us us and the rats and the roaches that's it we got yeah you know so i think we yeah no but you know not all of us are gonna die i think the question is um what do we want that situation to look like you know like um and talk about the this notion of the anthropocene and like the notion that like we are in we we're in the driver's seat i think is like the thing about it <laughs> right so we decide this kind of to yeah. some degree so the mm. the anthropocene right is the is the idea that so the earth is defined by um periods of geologic history that are defined by whatever the dominant whatever the dominant thing of that period of time is so say during like the you know there's like the, the carboniferous period mm-hmm. you know and like the earth for hundreds of millions of years was just covered in dense dense plants right you know that's all that the, the ovidian is it the ovidian there oh man there's so many which is the, so many. the the arrival of this the so of badass. the fishes I've, no the, it's known for that's I the period of the fish i love right? this shit 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so most of the, most of these things last, you know, for very long periods of time. Geology. You know? Is this geology? This um, is it's, it's geologic history. Yeah. Yes. W- yeah. Coupled with evolutionary. Yeah. Right. Freaking. So we so bad at, to dude, the, the Cambrian period. You know, and then we're moving up to the Anthropocene. Right. People are talking about. Right. So we kind of emerged from the Holocene period, which is like this last period of time since the last glacial maximum, which is about, you know, 18, 20,000 years ago. Um, and so starting about 10,000 years ago, kind of coinciding with when humans uh, started agrarian, like permanent settlements. They started, they started uh, planting seeds in the ground, right? Mm-hmm. They, when, they, when we figured that out and created these societies, the argument is so like about 10,000 years ago, begins the Anthropocene period. And mm-hmm. because the earth has changed so much in terms of um, what, like how we've changed both the earth surface, like the land surface, as well as how we change the oceans, like in terms of the species that exist there, how we've changed the composition of the earth's atmosphere, how we've changed the composition of the earth's uh, cryosphere, right? The ice, uh, the, the, the ice mm-hmm. caps and the, and, the, and the glaciers. Right. Um, all of these combined, and there's so many more that that, are, that we're talking about on like a microplastics. Play. Oh man, God, don't even get me started there. I do, I do. One of my freelance things I write about is uh, microplastics and nanoplastics, and yeah, we are like yeah uh, a decade and a half behind uh, in in, my, in this in how bad the plastic problem is compared to what we know about climate science. It's bad. It's bad. Well. We'll get, Let's we'll not, get it another time. <laughs> yeah, but it, uh, it's going to be one of the, you know, I remember very early on when we were putting together ASPN, you were wanting, we did a podcast. We did a very early podcast on plastics and you, it was the swizzle stick thing. I think I forget. And you were really pushing for the show. You're like, we got to do this show on, on plastics. And I was like, you know, this was like two years ago. I was like, I don't know. I, it's a thing, but how big of a thing, really? You know, I was I had my skepticism, but over the last couple of years, looking at the science and you know the core samples from the deep ocean and all over the Arctic, I mean, it is true that this substance that was developed in the '60s. I mean, this comes from the graduate, right? That's the thing I always think about when it comes to plastics is when the guy goes. Gives him the stock tip, right? It, to Dustin Hoffman. And he says, I'll tell you what you need to invest in. What you need to invest in is plastic. That's what the guy, the old man tells Dustin Hoffman in the movie. So I'm thinking, what was that? Then 62 or something. So, I don't know, so what I'm saying is, deep track. Well, I'm, gonna, well, I'm saying the whole plastic problem is really recent. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. I love that. We'll try to you splice know, that in. We'll try right, to splice we that splice in. Splice that out. No, no, no. We're gonna <laughs> splice in the cut of the movie right here. Um. Wow. What was that train of thought? We were talking about. I um, have no. We no. We, idea. we we were on the we were on the threats of the ocean thread, and you were saying you know plastics in addition to climate oh. change and. Oh yeah, we asked, yeah. I was like, I start, I write about plastics from time yeah. to time. What, but what was what were we talking about before that? Um, human resilience impacts, climate mm-hmm. impacts, uh, the Anthropocene, how we changed the Earth's yeah. surf, how we yeah. changed the Earth's yeah, surface. Yeah, yeah, um, That's where we were. We were at yeah. the end. Oh. It was oh, transitioning. And we, had, we, we had listed plastics. The, as and an we're example. getting to the Anthropocene, which is yeah. apparently is something I haven't heard. Is that the next? Yeah. 
so, zone we're going into. So, so the Anthropocene is, is where we are now. And the argument is that it started about 10,000 mm. years ago gotcha. because we've changed the earth's, all those things that we, that we mentioned, like, it, uh, encompass this, this new, um, geologic era of earth's history where, you know, at some point millions of years from now, when we are squashed to just a little thin layer of dust in the geologic record, right. The composition of that dust will be, you know, this, uh, like the, the, the ice, it'll core, be a uh, noticeable layer, right? The ice core sample will have a super high carbon concentration. Correct. You know, uh, the, and the, a lot the, of the, the dirt layer will have a lot of plastic in it. Yeah. Um, there'll probably be a massive disappearance of species. I would imagine because yeah, you know, we're, we're extincting, uh, thousands and thousands of species uh every yeah. year you know more like probably more than that at this rate so yeah it'll be one of those layers where it's like humans kind of die out and there's nothing there for a while you know just like <laughs> like like one of those empty spots in earth's history yeah. where there's just like very little life and the, and you know what's going to be great about it is the dude who's out there digging through that layer is still going to be a nerdy dude <laughs> with khakis and a little hammer and he's going to be going and it's like because those guys are the same. What does that dude? I mean? What does that dude yeah, look like? Is it like a little? Like, is it like a little creature? Yeah, he's, well, he's like, like a little. He's a geologist, <laughs> a nerdy geologist with the hat. You know, and he's going to have this hammer. But, but it's like a no. slime. It's like a slime ball or something. Though, well, you know? no, it's not going to be like a human. I, no, I think it's it's going to be these guys are going to go on forever and they're going to peck through this stuff and they're going to go and then this was when humans were pumping plastic and everything and that's this layer yeah and then it was all mudded yeah. over by a gigantic you know yeah. whatever so i guess yeah. so so my vision my my vision of of humans on this planet is just like i've got such hope for it to be one of uh, that's in harmony with with nature with its, its with right. its environment um and i think it's possible and like right. i've i've been having a lot of experiences lately with different groups of people i was on a farm upstate in new york um my friend lena has put together a community up there and there are like there are glimpses of of this kind of uh living in harmony that i know are possible and so it's like i'm hell-bent on now totally. living, living my life right in this way as much as possible with movement toward that, toward that vision. And I think if we all can just kind of like think about what an ideal world looks like, like we all, whether we're Democrats or Republicans or whomever, we all want. All right. Uh, can I ask a question on this thing? Yeah. Cause I think it's, I absolutely think if we were in, it's another level of conscientiousness about how we connect to the living space we're in and stuff like that. The, the question I have about this approach is whether or not it can be scaled to a level of meaning, which, you know, if everybody were to sort of be work in this more conscientious way, which I think is describable, is understandable, um, and actually would be demonstrably better. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to use as much water. You don't have to use plastic and you don't have to use fossil fuels. I mean, you, we can live. I mean, there's a whole thing, right? I just think the problem is scale. I mean, I think I'm thinking about how do we change all the power plants, first of all? How do we change, you know, land use? I mean, I'm coming from the top down and you're coming from the bottom up. Yeah. Right? Can yeah. I? Can do you I, know what I mean? Yeah, go ahead. I just, I, be, I think that that is the problem. I mean, that is, that is, that is the social problem. Right. Is That's that why we are, we are actually as a people right now, like right, as yeah. a species, we're really yeah. strong in both places. I would, yes. I would say, 
As someone who talks to a hell of a lot of people who do a lot of fucking very hard work in this subject, I would say that at the highest level of thought leadership, very strong. People really understand. I mean, there's audits of our of what the planet is and what our emissions are and how we our energy. Well, major there's major policy heavy hitters and there's major financial decision makers who are responding to climate change in real ways at this moment. And I think and I would say that. But the the level of thinking, not a majority of thinking at that level is very strong. Yeah, I would say it's very strong. And there's a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of investment, a lot of high end work at that level. Right. On the other end, at the what uh, the individual Nira, level, what Nero would call at the site level, you know, like at the local level, my beach, my lagoon, my bay. Right. It's very strong. My river, Peter. It's very strong. And people are um, absolutely engaged and connected and willing to show up on a Saturday to volunteer, to pick up trash, as futile as it may be. They do it in service of their local thing that they are they are connected to, which I would say is also very strong. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm saying. So what's what about that middle ground? That's how do saying. we how do we do the middle problem? That so, to me is is the problem. So what I'm saying what I'm saying is that everyone right actually wants the same things right. I've been driving across the country for two months now. I've, I spent a month in the Northeast region. I spent the last few weeks driving across the middle of America. I was in Pennsylvania the day after the election, right? Driving past ranches of of of, uh, of Trump Pence 2020 like Trump train, you know like. I've I've had interactions with people. I feel like I've got a, a pulse for things that are happening now. And I and I stayed with a family, a, a Trump family in Colorado. Unknowingly, they welcomed me into their home. We bonded. We had an amazing <laughs> connection. God, we all want the same things. <laughs> we all want to be happy. We all want to be happy. We all want safe schools for our kids. Yeah. We all want clean air. We all want clean water. We all want the same things. It's like um, we have to we have to figure out a way to see past these like superficial like imagined divisions that exist among us because they're really insignificant compared to the challenges that face us because we have serious challenges that are pressing and we're unable to address them because we're so caught up in our own shit and like this feels like a country that is uh god man we're at a we're at a serious gut check moment you know but what i love about that story so when you you go to stay you guys connect talk about what your expectations hopes and dreams are about the country you know elections happened not aware that that when you when the conversation started that this was a, a, a trump voter right and you're not a trump voter, and and that was what i was kind of saying earlier it's the rural urban divide issue and i'm talking about is we're all americans i mean it is we have been sold a bill of goods about each other you know people who read donald trump stuff and think that liberal Democrats are waiting to inviting the communists and all of that, you know, this crazy ass litany of policies. Look, we're, this is the thing about 80% of, we are, we are courageous tied to the center people that we go 20 degrees in either direction. And that's as far as we go. And then there's a few loonies that are way out there. 
we're mostly all the same. We all want, as you're saying, Dave, we all want to be happy. We yeah. all want to, you know, we want the yeah. force. We don't want the force to be screwed up, but we understand people need jobs. And sure, we're going to cut some trees, but don't fuck it up entirely. Yeah. That's, that's, we're all the same. Yeah. I don't feel like we're asking for a lot. No. You know, <laughs> you know I, I have to say, uh, if you look, if you look at kind of American history, just as a, if you just were to lay it all out there from like a bird's eye view, you'd say that there were moments 20 years at a time, maybe, where there are, as we described, like most people kind of get on the same wavelength. And then you'd also look at it and see moments of just terrific division, just gut splitting division. Yeah. And one cannot help but hope that we are coming into an era of collegiality and connection the way you're describing because it seems like to me like the big problems before us uh, will require this uh, this goodwill a willingness to to do it for uh, do it for one do it for all you know like that that kind of spirit of being an American citizen uh, I hope is going to come back. Uh, we certainly, I, I'm feeling it. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling it. Did yeah. You, yeah. And as a backup on your plan. Trip, so tell us on your trip, you, you, you encountered a lot of people. What, what, what's the sum total? You're now in Texas. You're halfway between New York and where you're headed to in California. So how's <laughs> it sounding so far? So I guess I'll, I'll just tell you the story of the family I interacted with in Colorado. Um, I'm very interested. Yeah. And I mean, you're directly connected to this, Tyler. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. This oh, is a man. small town American, American living. Yeah. Two yeah. boys that grew up in the same small town. And I'll, ju- and I'll just say to anyone who listens to this, um, who has interacted with me on this trip or who knows me, um, I've had so many incredibly serendipitous connections and like things that have really like many layers to, un- to, to peel back, to understand how they possibly could have aligned, but, um, they were, they've all been magical. And this one in Colorado was really special because, um, I got a LinkedIn request <laughs> of all things, right. <laughs> From Sean O'Brien, our old high school friend who now lives wow. in, Dur- in Durango. And, really? uh, I had, when I accepted it, I looked at it and I was like, Oh, well, Sean's looks like he's in Durango, or at least he played a show in Durango. He's a musician. And, uh, and so I reached out to Tyler. I was like, Hey man, is Tyler in Durango or uh, is Sean, Sean. Is Sean in Durango? And so he gave me his number. I reached out to Sean and he and I couldn't connect cause he was, he, he drives a, a, a truck of some kind. Like a delivery yeah, truck. He, he delivers uh propane propane. Right. And, uh, so he couldn't meet until like six 30. So I was like, Hey man, I got to, I'm trying to get on to New Mexico. So I'm going to leave. But if you know of a spot where I can camp between here and like, you know, Pagosa Springs area, let me know. And he goes, oh, my sister-in-law works on a ranch out there. It's massive. It's right outside of Pagosa. So he puts me in touch with her. And I was I was inclined to say no because I wanted to just push on. I wanted to like make some ground. And that wasn't too much that night. And something in me was just like, man, you've been saying yes to things this entire trip. And they've been leading you into like really, if not like really awesome situations, really meaningful situations where you learned a, like a valuable lesson from, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to reach out to Mackenzie. Way to go. I'm going to reach out to Mackenzie and see, what, to see what's up. Yeah. yeah. 
Good call. Yeah. And so she buzzes me into the gate and there's this massive iron gate with a big KG on it. I was like, whoa, <laughs> go inside. And it's, dude, it's 4,000 acres of pristine forest in the San Juan National Forest. Wow. Um, and this guy, he's like a Manhattan developer, uh, has, he owns the land and he's built a, a few different structures there. His main house is like, uh, I don't know, like 35,000 square feet. His get the guest house where I stayed was 26,000 square feet. And like, and you know, every bedroom was like a different country. Let me say, you're not saying 2,600. No. Yeah. 26,000 square square feet feet was the guest house. The guest house. Yeah. That's where I stayed that night. 26. It's the size (laughs) of 10 houses, but 10 big houses. You know what I mean? So I get there before the family arrives, right? And they're... I don't think this is camping. That's my only objection <laughs> yeah. to the story so yeah. far. <laughs> yeah. So uh, their son comes into the room. He's seven years old. And he's he says his name uh, is Easton. And he's like, the market was eventful. And I was like, oh, whoa, how so? And he says, well, a Biden supporter uh, called my mom a loser, you know, like a, in a taunting way. Um. And then like tried to run her over. And I guess like the driver, like I later heard from the mom, that, like the driver, like, you know, like Inch. sped up at her, you know, to like, wow. you know, th- threaten her. Um, what a weird situation. And, you know, like, so I was like, I was like, okay, this is a, this is a Trump supporting family. And the mom comes in, she's wearing a Trump 2020 hat. So I was like, okay, obviously, obviously a Biden supporter saw her hat in the parking you lot. Are and there's this in you know? right now. Did yeah. you have to change t-shirts really quick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but so, so this was the beautiful thing about the story. We had this fucking beautiful connection we got along so well just immediately swimming in the deep end and on all things in life never once love that never once approaching politics just talking you Uh know just having like a deep soulful connection right there's a jacuzzi you know went out to the jacuzzi and like overlooks the mountains at nighttime it's just i saw shooting stars humanity uh you know transcends yeah we can transcend this stuff it wasn't until the next day that uh that we even broached the what had happened the night before where we was like where we talked about it and actually acknowledged that we were like in different political situations, but it was like literally nothing about our characters and our friendship was compromised by the fact that, isn't that great? Cause it, man, it was just so, you know, it was so beautiful one because it was like, you know, on the left, we like to think of ourselves as being above the fray and we're not, you know, there are no. plenty, plenty of us out there who are. So I'm going to, so I, you know, I just came back from Florida. I went last week over to, uh, take a look at some beach issues and talk to some people and i end up staying with uh, a a guy uh that i've known professionally but uh stayed at his house you know he invited me to stay at his house yeah and it's covid and i was thinking maybe that is the better right instead of the hotel but anyway i end up staying with these guys and uh on the other side of the political spectrum Right. So similar situation. It didn't become it was apparent, you know, because when I get there and Fox News is on, there's a, it's a, the election counts going on. So when the news is being reported, people are either like, yeah, Biden really should have won that or Trump really. You know, you, you can tell. Right. Oh, yeah. Plain as day. So it was clear <laughs> yeah. we were not on the same you can definitely but, pick up but, the signals. But in, over the couple of days that I stayed there, we became very good friends and talked about lots of other things, even though we understood sort of the political differences in the background. And I think it was hell, uh, talked about very 
comfortably and in a way that I, gave me hope. Similar, you know? Yeah. I, and that's, you know, you'd ask me, like, am I an optimist? And I am. Like, okay. I, like, yeah. And I don't know if that's like a, like a deep childhood, like, you know, associating myself with like certain like archetypes, you know, like a hero archetype or something where you get, you, you have to be an optimist to be a hero, right? Cause you have to believe in something you have to like, yeah. and in order to be a leader in anything, you have to have a vision that someone else says like, yeah, that idea, that guy or girl, like, yes, that. It's not naive. Go. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> you know? essential. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, I actually don't think it's, it's just like being the uh, officer at watch at 3 a.m. Right. You, gotta you can't show, you know, there's you a believe. part I, w part of when I uh, was uh, named the file here, I, uh, <laughs> I, I love how you brought that back to the, uh, to the show. Yeah, that the, was beautiful. The show title. <laughs> what is the show title? The show title. I have leadership in the show title, climate change leadership. Cause I, I'm actually really interested as a coast guard officer in your like view of like, how do we command uh, uh, this is a ship in distress here, our society. We need to make a radical change in order to avert. Uh, yeah, yeah, brother. Good so, like, what what would you say from a from a leadership? How do you how do you turn this? Because the thing about our society is that it, it seems to not like to be disrupted. I mean, I think we learned a lot in COVID. I, I think a lot of us that are in the climate thing and and environmental space, coastal space, Peter. The COVID thing was very interesting because we mm -hmm. really saw. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I'm, I, what do you think about the, how how do you lead through this? Yeah, I mean, the ship analogy is like that is it, right? When you talk about how we how we transition society, right? If society is a ship, and a ship turns with its rudder, right? And so a ship turns with its, with its rudder with with rudder commands. You you adjust it several degrees, right, in a direction, and when you by adjusting just those several degrees on a rudder, uh, because the bow is further forward, uh, that translates into a larger directional change, right? Oh. In the, in the, in the path of the vessel. Oh. So, so I, like I think about society, right. With, in terms of like these, these, like these rudder adjustments, you know, like a little trim tab. And if we can just slightly nudge society, right. Like my approach is kind of through mm. social nudges. Um, I, I guess that's kind of where I found myself from this climate society degree, right? In this, yeah. I've been, I'm in this position of like understanding science, seeing society, yeah. uh, recognizing uh, the incompatibility with what needs to happen with what's happening, and trying to like apply these rudder All these right, rudder adjustments, so. right, to to send the ship in a different direction. Okay, so this, I mean, can't avoid it. Uh, you're working with uh, water progressives, right? Is that what it's called? The watershed progressive. The watershed progressive out in California, and um, you're, I think, in the community. As you said, the what was it? it was the 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 word in the? Uh, the I, I think I said the uh, the voice in the pen. Yeah, the voice in the yeah. pen of the organization. <laughs> that is the best description of uh, being the public information communications director of an organization i've ever heard i, th I yeah. think it should be used more frequently i think so it, it, and is also that original it, if it, i just missed that some craft which the I voice like. yeah of course it is totally a craft yeah totally. 100 percent. yeah well they didn't really give me a title when they hired me they just said like what is your title <laughs> i'm like <laughs> well uh 
narrator, I guess. I don't know. Okay. But uh, <clears throat> active voice in the pen. I think it's good. Yeah. So I mean, so this 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 company, Watershed Progressive, um, they're originally based out of Tuolumne County, in the up in the Sierras. Um, they recently opened another another operation in Ventura County in Ohio, where I'm from and right. where I'm currently living. And they're doing all this great work in these places with regard to how uh, the communities conserve water, how they recycle water, how they've, uh, how they create their landscaping. And basically in an effort to not let any drop of water be used just once, you know, whether it's gray water recycling, black water recycling, uh, rainwater harvesting, you know, the creation of, of, of areas where groundwater, where aquifers can recharge. Um, it's, we're, we're, we're hell bent on, uh, watershed health on restoration the, on the landscape right? scale, like on the exactly. human feet on the ground exactly. level. Exactly. Which, tra- cool. which translates to a parcel by parcel approach. Right. Yeah. So, wow. um, we work with like people who own land essentially, you know, like whoever, whether you're a land steward, whether you're a, a, a city, a municipality or a landowner, like a resident. Um, the idea is we want to work with you to design your space to enhance the health of, of the watershed through, you know, native plant, uh, restoration, removal of invasive species, you know, like the idea being, you know, when, when rainwater falls on the society that we've built, we often shed it off the landscape quickly, right? It, it falls on a roof, goes into the gutter, the gutter shells it, shells it out to the street, goes into the gutter, goes into the channelized channel that makes it out to the river and Maybe yeah. maybe if it's not dammed up somewhere, it has like you know it can do some some channelized all the way through. So yeah, th- th- this is now, I don't know if this is accurate. It's either it's either Aristotle or Plato, right? Back in the day, we're going back. We're going back. <laughs> who wrote? No, who wrote this very thing? He he was he wrote uh, about the denuding and the deforestation of the hills over Athens along the coast. Huh. And he wrote this whole thing about the clear cutting. He was saying, you've got to stop cutting all the trees on the land above the city up in the mountains because everything is washing into the ocean and the water is not staying to do all the stuff. We he basically said it's not being used on the way down like that. would Really? Be, yes. He said like that would be irrigating the trees and then it would be into our bathtub and we would have the spa and it's like what it's doing is it's skipping all that and going too fast exactly yes that's exactly this is what he wrote about it it was it was considered one of the first environmental statements by a greek philosopher it was about yeah exactly that exactly so the so the idea is right if we can um take our built society right because we've made all these impermeable surfaces we've got asphalt we've got freeways we've got channelized it you know um it's the, terrible it's terrible so really to, so it. so to the extent that we can uh catch water slow it collect it disperse yeah. it slowly in a way that it would mirror like it's it's natural it's natural way so like you know harvesting the rain just trying to slow it and not have it just run off of our land, especially in an area like Southern California where we've got yeah. so many people dependent on water from a far far away land because our relationship with it is broken, you know? Yeah. yeah. Colorado river. So, man. but now it's correct. I mean, you want the water to soak into the land, even in these small watersheds, because those spring fed creeks and rivers all through the summer will help. It 
makes the groundwater table higher. So if you're growing stuff in your yard, the water, you know, I mean, all, you don't want the water to leave across the top of the land. And this, it, it, it does a lot of stuff on the way down. You know, exactly. You want to, you want to make that happen. And it's just, it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, like Tyler, like our watershed where we grew up, you know, the Ventura river watershed and like the Sespe Creek and that, you know, how it flows into the Santa Clara watershed, which was our adjacent, our adjacent basin. Um, you know, that area was rich with, with the California golden beaver, you know? So like there were, there were natural systems in place there to also slow that water even more so. But instead, you know, the, I mean, be- the beavers, beavers like beaver, dams and all that. Yeah, like, like actual beavers. Like dams. we had beavers out there. The landscape looked different than it did now. You know, no like, question. It would have oh. been boggier and swampier in areas. It would have been moister generally. It just would have been a wetter environment. Yeah. And by the way, uh, the native people of the area did not reside there. It was not a permanent residential area. It was like a you show up there for ceremonial purposes or to hunt. Or to gather, it was it was not because it was too wet. It was really? a very wet zone, yeah, Be- because of the beaver, because of the Damn. the forest cover and the diversion of the watershed. Miners Oaks was like a marsh; it was a yeah. swampland. Yeah, <laughs> but so, um, yeah, like the watershed that we grew up in looked so much different than it did now. And in that area, um, a study that was released in 2018, I believe found that the Ventura County region where Ojai is has warmed 2.6 degrees Celsius since the industrial era. That is a faster warming than anywhere else, faster than anywhere else in the contiguous United States. That's nearly five degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a big number. And some of it is not necessarily directly like, so for example, because the Eastern half of the United States emits more in terms of like industrial pollution, they actually reflect so much sunlight that this half of the continent w- is warming faster than mm. the eastern half, hey, right? Okay. Because there's so many aerosols that reflect right, the sunlight. Right, right. So we're already at like kind of like a warming imbalance there. Um, and then you also have significant land use change in our in our region. You know, like that land didn't look like the way it does now, and that makes a big difference. Land use is really important. If it's forested, it's a carbon sink, and it cools. And um, mm-hmm. when it's not it becomes this feedback loop, right? Yeah. Of erosion and wildfire and invasive species. And like, you know, we, we overgrazed it. So there's, there's so many, there's so many natural and, and human interactions happening in right in the area where, where we grew up. And so it, that's, what's really cool for me about this job with watershed progressive is that I'm getting to do a lot of work in the watershed I grew up in and really have an impact. On that a, is, that a must be way. really satisfying to see it. I mean, to see what it was like when you were a kid, be part of maybe making it better. That could be better, right? That's a pretty good gig. I, it, I like it feels super aligned. And yeah. so, in this new position, so I understand uh, you. And I've listened to the trailer for your podcast, which is called "The Water Table," which is a very cool name. And uh, the the trailer was uh, Tyler and I listened to it, and I said, "God, man, that is really, really well done." Oh man, <laughs> like that's cool. Good. Who put that together? That is like, he's like, no, that's yeah. professionally done. It was yeah, superb. We are professional like, <laughs> grade in a different way. We're more of a B2B kind of a podcast. <laughs> I mean, we literally. No, we can, <laughs> what's funny? I want to I talk to your people. I'm like, that sounded. There's a couple of shows that we need that. 
It needs to be that good. It was super well, good. No, anyway, we're, we're, we're on our way. We're on okay, our way. so yeah. that was well, what's crazy is that was done on my cell phone. <laughs> oh, on my cell phone recorder. You, so recording on this is incredible. You guys have like a this is like a legit setup. I can it, hear it. It's going to be considered OG. I have a headset, too long. dude. Doing this on the road, you guys should like. I've, I've been making like I, wherever I'm staying. I've been like staying at friends and family's houses and stuff. I make like a pillow fort on the couch and like yeah. a blanket over the top, and I just like record on my phone and try to like. Dead, All right. So tell us what so. As the host of the Water Table <laughs> podcast, A, where can I listen to it? How do I subscribe? And what are you trying to do with your show? Oh, man. All the questions. Okay. Thank, thank you for opening yeah, it up, the, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wide open. Wide open. <laughs> yes. How do I get it? And what Texas, are you doing? Like yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Wide open country. What are you trying to do? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I'm, I'm, up, I'm putting the plug up front. You yeah. don't have to wait thirty minutes. I want to hear it right now. Like, Especially, how do, how do I get? I'm glad you guys liked the name because I, I was that was I, that was like the double excellent. entendre, the yeah. double entendre I was looking for. Excellent. You know, like from the trailer, it's an excellent fit. Yeah, Good, yeah, great yeah. answer. Yeah, and the, the idea of like you know the water table, like there's the physical water table, which is kind of where the groundwater and the surface water meet in like right. different land zones, and then you have like the idea of a physical table. Which to me inspires community, you know, that's where mm -hmm. people come together and like of course. A, a table has always been a place, at least in modern society, like that's where you would come Having to get, a come place together at the to, table is a exactly. meaningful and in, in, in political power. Do you have a seat at the table? Exactly. Is what we talk exactly. That's how we say it. It implies stakeholdership, yes. doesn't it? And, and yes. But and also like, yeah. but also like fraternity and love and like mm -hmm. sharing of knowledge yes, and like being at the table. Yeah. Yes. So. I like, um, oh, I, I like I like all of those words you're using there. Man, we had so many iterations of names. I really wanted uh, Headwater, but I think it was going to be a bit too fooey for people, for the people, for some of our target audience, which is like, you know, we want to be able to reach yeah. out to, to, to like farmers in the Central what Valley. What you got to do you know? is go down to the river and right. like become a psychonaut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, if that's you, you, you know me. That's what I wanted. That's where I wanted to go. <laughs> that's where I wanted to go. No, no. Look, what he's talking about is the breadth of, in order to work across the rural space and with landowners and, and the urban connection and water to the ocean, right? It, you've got to have a broad-based appeal. Water table is absolutely the right choice because the Christian table, the last, I mean, it, it is comfortable and easy to come to the table. And it also has a scientific understanding as well. It's yeah, perfect. Yeah, thanks, man. Headwater would have totally destroyed that. <laughs> and there's probably, there's probably. Oh, I'm glad they talked no, me out of it. Uh, no, the, no, because it's it's a little we, spacy. We do a lot of podcasts over it's here. It's a lot of ASPN. spacy. I think yeah. you, we, we, we battle this out all the time. We do. <laughs> I mean, we. we you, guys, you guys are the best. Us, you guys are the best it. radio partners. I love it. I love being here watching you guys interact. It's so great. Oh, I love it so much. No, well, it, it is a lot of fun. Uh, here we are. <laughs> the sun has set. Yeah, got to turn this show yeah. in. We've had a few course banquets. And yeah, no, a few joints. Well, uh, uh, no, but um, <laughs> bring that, her back around. Yeah, but no. When we started, what I was talking about is this was just going to be a show about service and veterans. You know, and we have a guy who went to the Coast Guard Academy and served six years as an officer. So eight, eight. Okay, <laughs> you know that's real. And uh, and then when we get to talk about the advocacy thing and the perception, one of my favorite topics all the time is our relationship and how we understand the land water interface and how we fit in it. Yeah, I mean, starting out from a what was called an a 
a base of operations. Is that what the words were? Theater of operations. A theater yeah, yeah. of operations. I mean, an understanding of your relationship with the coastal stuff as the theater of operations and trans and, and, and evolving to where you are now and what you're thinking about in watersheds. That's a very cool story. Totally. That's a very cool story and consistent with what right. we're trying to do on, on this show. The show's running long. Is it? But okay. I promised myself I would give <laughs> I would give this conversation a moment to because this is a special a special uh, opportunity to do this show with Peter. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, kind of your we've been talking about society at large, but I, I want to give some time to talk about where you things where you think things are going. And I, I actually Peter. Ravella, I really like what you were saying there about the land water interface. And to start this off, as someone who's been thinking a lot about communicating the watershed uh, podcast that you are, what are your thoughts on the coast? What do you think about the climate change dynamics here with the the beach houses and the communities and the industrial areas you were in the coast guard you saw the the industry the heavy industry and so on and so forth what do you what do you think about the coast I, i'm curious to know like it's what do you think the coast i mean that's the front line isn't it because everywhere else it's going to be uh you know we're going to we're going to see water impacts probably first you know, you look at talk about places like the American Southwest where you're already seeing some major water issues. Yeah. Um, but you know, in the coastal sphere, um, sea level rise is 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 gonna be is gonna be real, and it's not that far off. You know, it's like think about uh, the, think about this when you sometimes we think about like like cl- climate projections that are like X number of feet by 2050. You yeah. know. Yo, we're 29 years from 2050. That's bonkers. It's already happening. That's so close. All right. I bet you did not know this. I was staying in Jacksonville, Florida last few days ago. Just a week ago. Watching the local news. And you know what's in the weather forecast? Coming up this Friday is the latest king tide, which will flood your neighborhood. There will be no wind or clouds this is our king tide we're in so for and they were they were forecasting like that like they do here in austin about pollen oh my right? god yeah no the, the, that the, shit's and wild then, and they had they said and this goes from savannah down to jacksonville and but up here in this part and they're they're project they're they're doing this now because it's it's real imagine that imagine having to prepare for saltwater intrusion on a yeah, regular basis yeah, you know yeah 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 it's funny because weather. I think it's important that we go down this path. Yeah. I want to give dignity to people out there who are like, okay, so there's saltwater intrusion. I have my truck. I can get through it. I mean, here, here's, here's what I think. I mean, I'm, I'm making a broad coastal take, and I think this might be a little different than a riverine si- system. In the coastal system, the dynamics of storms and risk are built in. So you're already like, I mean, I just don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like there is an expectation that 
you don't think that people react, they're not frightened by that, is what you're saying. They're not motivated to be different by that, you know, king's side flooding. Is that what you're... I think that they're... Because they're baked, they're baked I think the what risk. you're seeing is, ad- is adaptive living. They are adapting by now forecasting. You can expect this. Yeah, the okay. roads will be wet here. And you know what? You're going to keep on living because that's... What does that do? Tell me what the salt water intrusion problem really is. Well, a couple what, of roads are shut down. Well, what it comes down to ultimately is the in the experience of the people. I mean, I'm I'm asking like it's gonna be what what it's gonna be is the uh, they'll experience an impact to their fresh water supply, right? Because the water situation, the groundwater situation in Florida, especially South Florida, that that rock is porous, man, and so all of the aquifers that feed these metropolises in that part of the country are very vulnerable to saltwater intrusion. So as sea level rise comes up, it's not just like approaching yeah. it, you know, from like on the top of land. It's, it's yeah. approaching from okay. underneath as well. Okay. You know, let me, so let me, That's let me impact. advance. Let me, so what you're, what you're countering this with is science. You're saying, <laughs> well, actually what you're doing is yeah. big. Well, actually you're wrong that it's not a big deal, even though you're able to drive through it in your big F two fifty, Right. In your water supply, which is located, by the way, because Florida has been replumbed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and every, you know, right. look, look at a satellite image of Florida. It's in it's heavily <laughs> modified. Essential to what you're talking about is the notion of educating people and or sign or, or like what whatever buzzword we're going to use right now science communication seems to be what we're writing a lot right now in our grant applications which i suppose is true but i i'm just curious i mean like how, how do we uh break through and talk about climate change or whatever you know whatever your tides in ways that are that that allow for us to to do the type of social responses necessary like tax carbon or whatever well i i think i think peter said earlier the climate problem is a human problem right we have to uh figure out how to tell a story right we have to tell a story yes we have to tell a story about uh humans as a culture right and i think the you know the general trend of humans right now is that of one of, of greater peace and cooperation, right? And in in, if you scale back from in history, one hundred percent, actually, and right, and so we have these inflection points, right? right. Where there's you know maybe moments of violence, but it's kind of like climate change. You've got fewer, you've, you've got cool, fewer cool big years. wars. We've got you know there's a declining overall violent death rate on the planet. If right. you look from you know eighteen fifties to now, right? Even though you know World War One and World War Two were were hefty, hefty events overall. There's a lot less beheading going on. Right. Right. You know. Yeah. And so I think I think, you know, if you if you look at the human story like that, that this that we're going through this moment of like of a, a difficult growing pain, like objectively, at least for this country. And this country is so, sort of is a God, man, we are like uh, we are the Petri dish of the world. If America can work, if we can work, then the rest of the world is going to be able to figure this thing out, you know? And so like, this is a moment where like, right. again, we're digging, we have to dig deep right now. Well said by a, a U.S. Coast Guardsman, I well, would say, I would, I appreciate that point of view. And I've had, and that, I, and I, and I had, you know, um, this is the belief that America is truly could be a, 
and has a responsibility to be sort of a way, show the way on a complicated issue like and we are yeah. very much at risk of tossing that away yes i would go beyond that and say that america must like we this is our the bed that we huh. made you know we must we 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 are the only country with the horsepower i think well i think yeah. i mean this if is we don't global, squander is, it but i i just i think that it uh, I really feel at this moment, you know, this is <laughs> this is just a podcast, ladies, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but at this very moment in time, I feel like uh, American leadership in climate change is essential because of Do the econ- okay. yes, because of because of the big there. burn economic reality of globalism and if you're if you need like the way that globalism works right now is like you answer to the so big, let me ask let me the just, big let dog me make, let me just ask that's the here. u.s this is the conversation of of three i would say liberal progressive guys right yeah, this is a conversation is a true, we're having true. right white white yeah. True. And, right. So <laughs> what you're saying is In case y'all didn't know. Okay, so the listening. point that you were making now, like three self aware white what, guys. What, what were you right. Now what were you saying at the end of that last uh, that what you were thinking about climate change that the United States has a chance to lead, right? That we need to lead. And I think you were talking about American leadership and so was I as an economic and yeah. here's what I want to say about the sum total of these three points of view. We all just sat here and said the Americans need to lead through this huge transition that has to happen on the planet. And we all want us to be the leaders of that. And that is for economic, political and leadership reasons. For all the reasons. And we're and we're a bunch of lefties. You know what that sounds like, guys? I mean, we're sitting here going like we are Americans. We should be leading it. But like this. And I don't object to it. I'm just saying that I'm noticing that this is. What does that sound like? To me, that sounds like some patriotism. It does. Exactly. This is why I'm saying that the people who think about who. Like, oh, my God. This is a very deeply. What would be considered if we. America, shoved it the into land. the political context of the last couple of weeks, we would say would have been a Trumpian thing to say. And this is why I'm saying that what you're talking about in this optimism that we can come together, there's, I keep saying this, the differences are not as, as you said, I, I stayed with these people and we all wanted the same thing. Yeah. I kind of had that experience with this couple in Florida. We found a ton of common yeah. ground as Americans. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, the sales pitch that they're as radical, we are as radical is a lot of bullshit. We are all in this 60-40, we're pretty tight. We hate each other. The definitions of each other yeah. that we sold each other in yeah. this election. It's yeah. like an identity thing. It's right. its a total identity thing. It's effectively built, but it's bullshit. Because if you, go, if you go hang out with some of these people, you're like, you know what? Yeah. I had the best... Here's, right. I'll tell you what I found out. The guy I was staying with. Yeah, Peter, this is okay. a, this is an elegant story. You were talking about. You had a Trump. You were talking. Both about, Peters had a had an interesting cross the aisle stay overnight experience. We had that, week. and that is an interesting. And you were talking about the serendipity kind of thing. Yeah, I'm staying with this guy, and we end up talking about you know 
your family somewhere along the line. Like, yeah, Pittsburgh. He's like, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. I said, yeah, my dad's from, well, Pittsburgh area. He's like, really, where from? I'm like, well, he he grew up in Wilmerding. He said, Wilmerding? Hell, I lived like two miles from that. I was in, (laughs) I I grew up in Monroeville. And I said, really, Monroeville? I was married in Monroeville. He's like, you're kidding. What church? He's like, I said, yeah, my grandfather has a bar. And he says, you know, I think I've been to that bar. What? (laughs) And we pulled up Google Earth Street View. And he said, was it on this corner? It was across from the park. I said, yeah, it was right on the corner across from the Westinghouse. I mean, that's what it was, right? We turned out to be like grew our families are connected yeah you know it got down to the, and i'll tell you it got down to the yearbook level what year look because you know anyway i'm just saying and he we're closer we're americans i mean and we're sitting here talking about american leadership on climate change like we are yeah. The right people were smart enough. We need to be dedicated. We need to lead yeah. the world, and we, we can need, solve this. And we thing. can make money off this deal. And we need to be a leader. Yeah, and we're being, God. and we're, and we're all a bunch of lefties. And we're, but, and but like so collectively though. So thus far, we're fucking it all up, right? And yeah. so, yeah, we are. So we're this, abrogating. We're giving it away, right? And so this moment, right, right? This moment uh, is, ah, God, it's so precious. It's such a precious moment. Agreed. And. Um, I I can't help but feel like what this country does, um, the direction that we go in this moment um, will be kind of like the direction that humanity goes collectively for quite a period of time until something massive shifts. No pivot point. Right, right. So I just, um, every day, trying to li- try to live my life and try to tell anyone who I interact with, um, not tell them, right, but just... Just, right. just send the vibration uh, yeah. in the direction uh, of of yeah. a vision of toward that toward Attraction, that future. Attraction, not know? persuasion. I mean, you know, exactly. sort of like live the life and show it, and exactly people see it. And I, you know, the thing what I I like to say is uh, reality is a persistent teacher, and we're talking a lot about how do we communicate, you know, with this to motivate people. Here's the deal. Um, the environment will slap you upside the head and will continue to do it with greater hurricanes and weirder weather and all of the impacts that we're going to suffer. Droughts, rivers drying up. I mean, the, the, the planet is going to make clear that this is happening in reality. And it's sort of like what level of interaction do people have to have before they go, oh, shit climate change is real that's what i think's happening when they when when sea level rise gets on the weather report people are thinking <laughs> oh shit climate change is real it's happened yeah, no they've kidding. crossed the threshold yeah and there's going to be a whole lot more of that like you're saying fisheries fish are not showing up in the right place all this stuff is huge yeah i the mean room for denial yeah it's 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 really hard to like it's really hard to encompass uh in any succinct way like how in in, like the countless ways the system is flashing red you know right all all the alarms are going off in every which way and direction the science is uh is is present and what what it says that we need to do isn't quite yet being done um no and so you know it's it's People, like, people tend to think of it as a cliff. It's like, well, if we don't act within, you know, 12 years, whatever that the study was that people were freaked out about, 
then it's over. So we only have 12 years. And it's like, no, it's, it's a gradual slope, but the longer we wait, the more and more difficult it is to achieve, uh, the type of, uh, living situation that humans have lived in, in the past. Like, well, we'll just say it this way. This planet hasn't seen this level of carbon concentration. If we continue on this path, um, that I think we'll reach by 2050, uh, there, there isn't an analog in the record for 50 million years. Um, so, you know, this is a trajectory that's going to hang around. That's the trajectory that we're on. Right. And so the, you know, the carbon, the carbon we emit today is impacted in our atmosphere, you know, three decades from now. So it's like, it's, it's, it gets baked in. Um, and yeah. So it's serious business, man. It's serious and, business. And, and I have so much hope because we're, God, we've talked, we've, we've, the, I feel like the, the love that we've had tonight, the, the optimism that we've generated, uh, just through this conversation and the hope that we have in humanity for this moment for us to, um, to, to, to trend in the right direction, in the right direction, being that of harmony and peace and, and toward, um, what I love call, is yeah. the answer, you know, that wasn't just a 60 slogan. I think it was Jesus Christ who said it as well. It's the foundation of the Christian religion. It is. It, it is, is all love, love is the, the answer. Yeah. And, uh, so as radical as that is, perhaps that's a left, right connect. Perhaps we're radical. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's Dr. Peter Deneen, oh, who man. is the first conferred honorary PhD of ASPN <laughs> University by acclamation yes. of the board of directors. Yes. And I just got to say. Live on the show. And I've got to say, I think, I think we have established a great standard for the PhDs that, you know. It's going to be like, live on the you're show. Not, if you're running for office and you show up for a little hang gotta, time, I'm not, giving you the, I'm not giving you the degree. Well, I, gotta I be want real. something like this. It's not going to be a given, and we're doing it That's live right. on the air. <laughs> So there's gonna be some, there's gonna be some losers here, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on, hold on, Tyler. Send in your application. Send twenty dollars. I didn't want you to sign off before I got to say goodbye. Thank you, Tyler. <clears throat> Peter. Yeah, yeah. Peter, thank you. This is, man, what a special thing to be able to be here with you guys in person doing this. I, I loved it. Let's do it again. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I, Final I mean, obviously, uh, this turned out to be a really great this show. This was a long, this was a long and excellent ASP, uh, session here. Uh, let's see. Um, you know, Peter, it's, it's been really cool to observe your trajectory past, uh, uh Several I'm sorry, years. I do not mean to interrupt. I just want the listeners that when you said that, you were talking to Peter Deneen. Peter Deneen. Because I can't tell, Tyler. If you don't say <laughs> Peter D, because I know you're looking at it, so I just want to say this is an important... It yeah. was poignant, so I didn't want people to miss it. Well, that's or correct. Or misunderstand Thank you. Thank it. You for, you know? uh, Although your trajectory is pretty good, too. Because I thought you were... To, I know. Well, I thought, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I haven't gotten to my, my good buddy. No, but uh, Peter, uh, you know, since you... Uh, it was only four years ago that you left the Coast Guard and kind of went out to find your own path. And I'm really uh, pleased and excited that you found your way to uh, this climate change space. I think you're, you know, I really appreciate your the energy that you bring to it. This is the challenge. This is what we try to do on this program is to go straight to the fault line 
and talk there. Let's not waste our time with the buzzwords and the things that mean nothing. There's a whole lot of process that is designed to make progress that has been whittled around, uh, uh, whittled down to nothing just by you just you just do nothing. <laughs> You don't, you, you, there's no attempt made. There's no earnest attempt made. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being waved off. Well, hey. Um. <laughs> that was not the wave off. That was the wrap you got, up. You got pretty stoned. Hey, um, I know when you're giving me the wrap up. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ty, Tyler, I do, Tyler, hold on. I, I just, I just, I just want to say, because I don't want to, I don't want, because you were getting, you get you were saying some real kind stuff there. And I don't want to let you get all too sappy and sentimental without me acknowledging it so i'm gonna chime back in yeah, and say dude i've i've always appreciated your counsel over the years you've always been you've always been a person to call and like you know and ground me and and provide like a really uh like solid sense of perspective when um when i need to cross reference from my own reality you know and so i've always valued your friendship in that way um and it's and likewise man watching watching you progress into your into your coastal community space and the creation of this podcast that i've been listening to from day one and uh it's thank you yeah man yeah, so thank you I so that as well yeah so the feeling is mutual um and i'll also sign off and say if anyone wants to uh keep in touch stay in contact with me on a personal level um my twitter is uh at pete Deneen. Uh, my Instagram is at dancing.pete. Um, or you can go on my website, which is petedeneen.world. Um, and then with regard to the Watershed Progressive, you can follow our podcast, which is called The Water Table. Uh, and that's also a blog. So if you go to watertoolkit.org, you can get our blog and podcast info there. There's some awesome content uh, archived there already. And we're about to start rolling out our podcasts. Fantastic. Well, I really thank you. And, and I was telling Tyler, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast, The Water Table. I'm going to sign up for it. And, man, maybe down the road we could, you know, put it on our network and make it part yeah, of Yeah, I think feed. there's a collaboration down there's the road. A collaboration for sure. Down the crossovers. Road. Yeah, for crossover. sure. For sure. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks.